Hello, and welcome to this special edition of Western New York Catholic Audio. I'm Michael Mrosiak. It is my honor and my pleasure to take part in a one-on-one -on -one conversation in our studio with a man known internationally as the Pope's astronomer. Born in Detroit, Michigan in 1952, Brother Guy Consolmaglio attended University of Detroit Jesuit High School, earned his bachelor's and master's degrees from MIT in 1974 and 1975, respectively, then earned his Ph.D. in planetary science at the University of Arizona in 1978. He entered the Society of Jesus, known more commonly as the Jesuits, in 1989, and in 1993 was assigned to the Vatican Observatory. He was named the observatory's director in 2015. Brother Guy chaired the Division for Planetary Sciences of the American Astronomical Society from October 2006 to October 2007 and was awarded the Carl Sagan Medal in 2014 for Excellence in Public Communication in Planetary Science. He is the author or co-author of numerous papers and publications, including nine books, the latest of which was released just this year, titled When Science Goes Wrong. As a religious brother, though, he's not seeking to dismiss science as wrong, but to the contrary, he celebrates it, and more importantly, celebrates and defends the significant role of the Catholic Church in the advancement of astronomy and science over the past several centuries, clearing up many misconceptions about faith and science along the way. Brother Guy Consolmaglio is with me in studio at this time. Welcome. It's great to be here. All right. A lot of credentials there, and yet... <laughs> You constantly seem to have to face the stereotype that Catholics and Catholic Church leadership are anti-science. Well, it's, it's actually wonderful, because if that wasn't so persistent, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> no, it, it is frustrating at times uh, how often I hear that response, I didn't know the Vatican had an observatory, when we've been around for 130 years, and we're talked about, you know, I've been a couple of times on the front page of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And still, you know, the next day people said, oh, I didn't know. I really don't know where to even start. The patronage of astronomy by the church goes back centuries. It was one of the core subjects in its, in its universities. That's right. You know, in order to understand God as a creator, you have to understand creation. Um, you go find that in the scripture. You know, St. Paul, first letter to the Romans, or first chapter of the letter to the Romans, uh, talks about how God reveals himself through the things that he made. And... Why else would you, how else would you encounter God except as people of creation encountering God in creation? And just as a mom is going to have a refrigerator covered with the pictures of their you know, child or grandchildren's little drawings, and you love the child through the things that the child has made, all the more we love God through the things that God has made. Well, let's go back to Genesis. Let there be light and there was light. There's a Catholic connection to the Big Bang Theory. Indeed. Uh, Father Lemaitre was a Catholic priest, not a Jesuit. He hated it when he was confused with being a Jesuit. It is possible, if rare, for brilliant people to not be Jesuits. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> no, but quite seriously, uh, Father Lemaitre had two doctorates, one from Louvain in mathematics, one in astrophysics from MIT. And he was the kind of person who could read mathematics the way that you and I might re be able to read poetry. He could read in the mathematics of Einstein's general relativity that the universe had built into it this capacity to expand, which he predicted what Hubble discovered, that the expansion shows a universe that expanded from a point. And Lemaitre said, well, let's accept that. Let's just take that, that that's what creation looks like. But then you have to be really careful. 
because it's really tempting to say, ah, the energy of the Big Bang is the light of let there be light. Pope Paul, Pius XII said that in, you know, 1951. Oh, isn't it marvelous that, you know, the scientists are discovering what we found all along. Lemaitre, as a good theologian, as well as a good scientist, said, no, you cannot use science to prove God. That would make science be more powerful than God. But rather, you say that God created the universe, including the very creation of space and time, which is to say that the creation of Genesis is outside of space and time. It's everywhere and every time. And the Big Bang is just the description of what it looked like after that creation occurred. Would it be an accurate statement to define science as the fine art of figuring out how God did it? Yeah, that's a marvelous way of putting it. My religion tells me God did it. My science tells me how he did it. And in both cases, we have to know that our knowledge is incomplete. Otherwise, we wouldn't have anything left to do. And we just talked about uh, George Lemaitre and other great contributors came from Catholic backgrounds. Angela Secchi, spectrometry. Um, he, was a, he was a Jesuit and he worked in Rome. He had a telescope on the roof of the St. Ignatius Church, which is a marvelous church if you've ever been to Rome. It's got a dome that you go when you look. That's interesting. It's kind of dark. And the more you walk in, the more the dome looks a little weird until you realize it's actually a flat roof on this church. They never got around to building the dome. So they had another Jesuit artist named Pozzi go and paint the dome in perspective. So it looks like a dome from the, from the front of the church. But it meant it had a flat roof, no dome there. Secchi put his telescopes on the pillars that were supposed to be supporting the weight of the dome. And from there, he did a number of things that were really you know, revolutionized science. He was the first one to measure the spectra of thousands of stars and classify them, which is the beginning of what we now call the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. He was the first person to look at planets and not try to measure where are their orbits, but rather, what are they made of? What do we see on the surface? He even used that infamous Italian word canali to describe the channels, the real channels that you can find on Mars. He was also the guy who first noticed the connection between solar activity and magnetic fluctuations and, and magnetic storms here on Earth, which turns out are really important even today because whether it's you know, transmitting electricity from one end of a continent to another or using cell phones and anything with radio, you have to know what the sun's doing because it affects what happens here. There is a NASA satellite with a package called the Sun-Earth Connection Coronal and Heliospheric Investigation Package. And if you count that out, that spells S-E-C-C-H-I. What's better fame than to have a NASA instrument named for you? Isn't that something? And, and well, it's, observatories are, are nothing new to the Vatican. Um, the Vatican's Technology Telescope in Arizona has just celebrated its 30th anniversary. Congratulations. Thanks. But telescopes and observatories go many years before that with the Vatican. Talk about uh, the observatory in, in the 1800s uh, when it was established in Rome. Well, I'll go even further than that. The 1600s. Galileo first demonstrates his telescope at the Jesuit College in 1612, I believe it was. And among the people there was a fellow named Clavius. They named a crater for Clavius. If you ever saw the movie 2001, it was you know, the Clavius base. That's right, where they found the monolith. 
Clavius was the guy who wrote the book explaining how the calendar was to be reformed, which Pope Gregory did in the 1580s. So even before telescopes, there were Jesuits involved in astronomy. One of the first guys to design a telescope using mirrors rather than lenses was a guy named Zucchi, who was a contemporary of Galileo. So we're talking back in the 1600s. I mentioned the map of the moon that has craters named for Jesuits. The guy who made the map was a Jesuit, uh, uh, Jean-Baptiste Riccioli. And so there is this long history of Jesuits doing astronomy. One of the big things in the late 1700s was measuring the sun and Venus as it crossed in front of the sun. And if you observe that from more than one place on Earth and you know exactly where they are, you can draw a triangle and actually calculate the number of kilometers away that Venus is and the number of kilometers away that the sun is. A quarter of all those observations were made by Jesuits. You mentioned Galileo just a moment ago and his creation of the telescope. The Galileo affair with the church, of course, is what uh, critics will especially raise. Because it's the only thing they've got. It's yeah. the only example they've well, got. Well, where did history get it right and where did history get it wrong? Basically, everything you probably know about Galileo is wrong because it was all invented in the 19th century when people were trying to come up with reasons to bash the church, mostly to keep immigrants with vowels at the end of their names like, you know, Consolmagno or, or you know, Polish names to keep them out of the country because heaven knows they're going to ruin the place. But in fact, even though that's true, the church did put Galileo on trial for reasons that were wrong. But it wasn't reasons of science and faith. What were the reasons? Why did Galileo get into trouble? Well, go to Amazon.com. Look up Galileo history. You'll find hundreds and hundreds of books, each with a different story. The answer is the historians are still arguing about that. The favorite theories are that um, in some way maybe Galileo insulted the Pope in the way he wrote his book. And there's some reason to believe that. But on the other hand, the book was actually approved by the Pope's censor before it was published. And then the Pope was shocked, shocked to discover what was in the book that they'd seen for two years. Another theory is that it's kind of curious. The Galileo trial occurs at the very height of the Thirty Years' War when the Pope and Galileo's sponsors in Florence are tied up in all the politics of, you know, trying to fight this war, which is being sold as a war of Catholics versus Protestants, except the biggest supporters of the Protestant side were actually the Catholics in France. So it was a really complicated mess. And yet it's really hard to draw a straight line between that war and the Galileo trial. What we do know is that within a year, Galileo is back home. He's able to continue writing books to correspond with people, uh, you know, in the north of Europe where his last book is finally published. It's a really complicated and fascinating story. We've just heard that, and you've just explained the, the many Catholic connections. But once again, folks perpetuate that, that anti-science claim. Is, is it because maybe, is maybe the Catholic Church just being lumped in with some of the denominations that, you know, like creationists who will say the earth is only a few thousand years old? Is that maybe just like an unfair lumping of all of Christianity? And in some cases, it's Catholics themselves who are guilty of that. Because we live in a culture where the idea of church is still dominated with the idea of the evangelical Christian. And even that's unfair because I know a lot of evangelical Christians who are brilliant scientists who don't have that literalist view. Uh, That literalist view is something that, you know, even St. Augustine argued against 
at the year 400 AD when he wrote a book called On the Literal Interpretation of Genesis. And he said, don't interpret scripture that way because that's not how you interpret scripture. But I do have an idea. I can't prove it. I'm still working on how to really demonstrate it. Why did it happen at the end of the 19th century? What was going on in our understanding of science? And right about then, people were, who would confuse science with technology, they do that to this day, were confusing you know, steam engines and electricity with, with the latest in science. And ah, science is going to solve all of our problems because technology is going to solve everything. Well, sadly, it turns out that's not quite how it works. But you read the popular scientists of the day, the people who are popularizing science, Alexander Graham Bell or H.G. Wells, and you find that one of their hobby horses was to take Darwin's wonderful theory of evolution to explain how different species evolved and to turn that into first social Darwinism to say, ah, if I'm rich and you're poor, well, that's only the, the, the laws of nature forcing it to happen because I'm inherently superior to you. Ha ha. And then even worse, to turn it into eugenics. And the idea that, ah, I can make superior people by breeding them properly. Well, the first question is, what do you mean by superior? Naturally, people who look like me, not people who look like those people over there, heaven forbid. And secondly, to say that people could be in some way rated as being better or worse, which is a horrible thing to do to human beings, besides being scientifically absurd, because, you know, Lord knows, I, I went to MIT. I knew a lot of people with really high IQs who had utterly no street smarts. <laughs> no, come on. There's more than one kind of intelligence out there. There's more than one kind of ability out there. It cannot be rated. It cannot be judged. And nor should it be in that sense, because there's something immoral about saying these people deserve to live, those people don't. Until we wound up with, you know, the most technologically sophisticated death camps in Nazi Germany. Thank you, no. But until then, people thought that eugenics was going to be the salvation of the human race. And when the church said, no, that's a terrible idea, which we now know is also bad science, but that word hadn't gotten through so much. I think people then wanted to lump, well, the church must be anti-science. No, the church is anti-bad science. Not only bad in that it's actually not correct, but also bad in that it's utterly immoral. And bad science goes back centuries, too. You've got, uh, you know, alchemy trying to create gold, which, of course, uh, proved to be a miserable failure. You've got people who confuse astronomy with astrology. Talk about the, the need to, to put the good science forward and, and help people understand the difference between good science and, and junk. I think it's very useful to, to draw the parallel between good science and good religion, good faith. The person who claims they have it all, the person who claims that they're perfect and never needs improvement, who never needs to go to confession, they're the one you watch out for. Because, in fact, they're the ones who are afraid to say, maybe I was wrong, maybe I've got more to learn. And likewise, a science that says, I've got the answer, and this is the answer, and you don't need anything but my answer, that's not what real science is. Unfortunately, that's the way we learn science. You know, science in high school is getting the answer in the back of the book. 
But that's not science. That's any more than playing scales is playing music. That's the exercise you go through to be able to do the science. But real science is actually about getting it wrong and discovering where you got it wrong and then learning from it. Isaac Asimov has this marvelous phrase that, that the most exciting thing you hear in the lab is not, I found it, but rather, huh, that's funny. Because it's precisely when you learn that you were wrong that you begin to be excited because it means I've got something new to learn. You've had your learning moments uh, in, in your career. When you first joined the Vatican Observatory, your job was to sort through the extensive collection of meteorites. Tell me about some of the wow moments you had. Well, the first was, of course, that I gave myself the job. The job I was really given when I arrived at the observatory was do good science. And what freedom, but what frightening freedom. Because until then, you know, I'd had 20 years as a scientist, you know, living off of NASA grants. I got to do the science that NASA would pay for. Now I get to do the science regardless of where it takes me, regardless of who's paying for it. I had a background in meteoritics. I loved meteorites are like relics of space. Just as a relic reminds you that that saint was a real person, meteorites remind you that those dots of light in the sky are real places made of real stuff that you can hold in your hand and measure in the lab. Um, but I'll tell you one fun story. I'm going through the list of what was supposed to be in the collection and what I could actually find, and our seven biggest rocks were all missing. What a tragedy. So I, I joined, we joined the Meteoritical Society, the Society of People Who Study Meteorites, I'm at a meeting in Ireland one year, and I meet an Italian, a lovely Italian fellow who's doing some interesting work, but not really the center of attention. And his paper was the very last paper of the very last day of the conference. But because he'd become a friend, I show up to his meeting. And he's doing measurements deep in a mountain underneath, in a tunnel underneath a mountain in uh, Turin that had been built, I think, during World War II as bomb shelters because he needed to be away from cosmic rays, measuring the radiation, the very tiny radiation that comes off of meteorites. And you need big meteorites to have enough radiation. And he's listing the seven meteorites he's using, and I'm going, those are my seven meteorites. <laughs> he borrowed them from before I was there, and you know, the director said, sure, take them, and never bothered leaving a note where they'd gone. <laughs> so it was a case of being a nice guy meant that, oh, my gosh, our, our collection is now complete. Oh. Now, you entered the Society of Jesus in 1989. You were, well, already establishing a career in, in, in planetary science. When did you hear the call to serve God, and you know, what made you decide to enter the Society of Jesus? Well, I'd say the first call was probably when I was about five or six. Uh, like a lot of kids, I had a little altar that I built in my basement with, you know, a, a sherbet glass to use as my, uh, you know, my chalice, and I pretend saying Mass. I've always been fascinated by the church. I've always been just completely in love with the sacraments. And to be able to partake in them and to be able to have them on a daily basis was tremendously attractive. But then I went off to a certain Jesuit college, not Canisius, and I won't say the name, where this was 1970, and most of the guys in the freshman dorm were interested in, you know, drinking and, and acting stupid. And I can act stupid without any alcohol at all. <laughs> Who needs liquor? 
So then they would come and as they're failing their classes, pour out their problems to me. And I'm thinking, well, of course you got problems. You're an idiot. What do you expect? To get out of the freshman dorms, I talked to a Jesuit priest. And the priest said, have you prayed about this? I'm 18. Who prays? Well, I figured I'd better. While I'm waiting for the voice from the ceiling saying, go ahead, be a Jesuit. You know, they'll take anybody. Not true. (laughs) This voice comes instead saying, what do you think you're going to be doing when you're a priest? Dealing with people with problems. Guy, you're a nerd. You're really good at looking at stars and rocks that don't move. You're not so good handling people with problems. It's just not your skill set. This would be a terrible job. Ah, that's God telling me not to be a priest. So instead, if I figured if I'm going to be a nerd, I ought to go to nerd school. So I transferred to MIT and became a great nerd. It was only 20 years later, having done work in the Peace Corps and you know teaching astronomy to, to kids in the third world and finding how much they love to hear about the stars because it nurtures your soul. You, you don't live by bread alone. If you're human, you, you have to have that curiosity nurtured. And I was teaching at a wonderful little school called Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, absolutely loving it. I was now doing discerning from a place of, of contentment, of a place of, um, rather than desolation, a place of consolation, as, as the Jesuits would put it. And because I was in a good space, I could ask, what next? And what next was, you'd like to teach at a school like this, but standing for something bigger than just yourself. I thought, but, but God told me I'm, I'm not meant to be a priest. He says, but the Jesuits also have brothers. And it hit so beautifully, like, that's perfect. So, of course, you ask your friends, and they said, oh, well, you actually told me that years ago. I even asked some you know, women I dated, and they said, oh, yeah, we always knew you should be a priest or a brother. <laughs> Just not necessarily what you want to hear, but they're very smart people. They knew. Hmm. And the more I looked into that, the more it just felt like the right thing to do. So in 89, I entered, and as soon as I arrived, I said, yeah, this is where I belong. I'd done a lot of other things that made me happy, but finally I knew where I belonged. This was during the, the life of St. Pope John Paul II. Uh, you've had the opportunity to, to work under uh, a handful of popes. Did any of them express a direct interest or interaction in, in your work? All of them. Um, John Paul II was, of course, an academic, and he understood what academics do. Uh, so he was not directly interested in the, the work I was doing. He was interested in the observatory, and he was very supportive of you know, the summer schools that we had, which were started while he was pope, and he you know, made sure that there was uh, funding for them. He made sure that our headquarters was secure and well taken care of. The pope who came after him, Benedict, also an academic, also understood what we were doing, but he arranged for us to have new and fantastic quarters in the papal gardens. We used to be in the papal palace, and that sounds great until you realize we're in a building that you know, was not designed with indoor plumbing or the internet in mind. They gave us this phenomenally restructured building, and then Benedict came out to dedicate it. He showed up. He was interested in the meteorites. I was explaining you know, this one meteorite that he held in his hand that was you know, a rock from Mars. I wanted to know, how do you know it's from Mars? He had great questions. He also had a wickedly good sense of humor. 
and could make jokes about you know, the, the, the more fun absurdities of the things we do. He just was a great guy to talk to. And then came Francis, a fellow Jesuit. And not only that, but somebody who had a background in, in chemistry. Uh, we joke when you show a picture of him in the lab that, oh, yeah, he showed up and he brought his white lab coat with him. <laughs> but he's been extremely supportive, not only at the summer schools, but uh, he came out and had lunch with us the first year that he was pope. We had an audience of the, the dozen astronomers who are all Jesuits from around the world with Pope Francis just an hour to chat, to tell jokes, to talk about Jesuits we knew in common, to describe the work we're doing and the outreach we do. Now, you also work in a field that has many who are not necessarily faithful. Neil deGrasse Tyson is considered one of the rock stars in astronomy. Mm -hmm. uh, he has identified himself in the past as agnostic. And uh, Carl Sagan, meanwhile, I'm going to read a quote uh, from Carl Sagan. He wrote uh, this phrase, The idea that God is an oversized white male with a flowing beard who sits in the sky and tallies the fall of every sparrow is ludicrous. But if by God one means that the set of physical laws that govern the universe, then clearly there is such a God. So hinting also at being an agnostic, not a full atheist. Well, one of the things that Carl Sagan said to a friend of mine who was a student of his was, an, an atheist is somebody who knows more than I do. <laughs> the only honest answer is to say, I don't know. And guess what? None of us know for sure. Um, it was a, a religion writer, Anne Lamott, who put it beautifully. The opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Because if you were certain, you wouldn't need the faith. But the fact is, we go through life making all these decisions. You know, should I go to MIT? Should I be a priest? On the basis of inadequate information. You do it as acts of faith. It is faith precisely because you make a decision trusting in God and knowing that even if it turns out to be the wrong decision, you learned what you needed to learn from that decision to come out at the other end. Has your faith rubbed off on peers who might be on the fence as agnostics? I'd say yes. I can think of some examples. I won't say them out loud. That's their private story. But usually it's not a matter of faith or no faith. It's a matter of people who were afraid they had to leave the church in order to be scientists and then see from the example of the, the, any of the astronomers at the Vatican Observatory that you don't have to leave the church. In fact, leaving the church is leaving the source that gives us the reason to do the science. Because here are some things you have to take on faith. You have to believe that the universe is real. It's not just a figment of your imagination. If it was a figment of your imagination, there'd be nothing to study in science. You have to believe that the universe follows laws, like Carl Sagan said, because, you know, if it was nature gods throwing bolts, then there's nothing to study. You have to believe that the universe is so good and a root to goodness that it is a worthwhile thing for a grown-up to spend their time doing. And I'm not just meaning that, you know, we get Teflon or, or better drugs out of it. No. We study the universe for the joy of understanding the universe because that joy means that we are closer to God. That's why we do it. And I know a lot of scientists who will claim they're agnostics, but I won't know any of them that deny that the universe is real, that it follows laws, that it's worth studying, and who don't experience that joy because if they didn't, they wouldn't be scientists. 
as Catholics, we believe creation is well beyond what we know and that other life can be out there. And here's where we get to uh, be a little philosophical here. In your book, Brother Astronomer, Adventures of a Vatican Scientist, you've got a chapter titled, Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? Uh, you mentioned that the insistence God could not make other worlds was deemed a heresy back in the 13th century. So let's say we do in our lifetime find life out there somewhere. How might Christian principles, including salvation, apply to E.T.? Well, I wound up writing an entire book with my buddy Paul Muller, exactly titled, When You Baptize an Extraterrestrial. The subtitle was, and all the other stupid questions people keep asking <laughs> us. They, they made us take the word stupid out. It's a great question because it doesn't have an answer. And like all the good questions, it's the kind of thing you ponder in your heart. The way that when Mary came back with you know, the 12-year-old Jesus from the temple wondering, what have I gotten myself into? She didn't write three chapters of Christology for some you know, great treatise. She pondered these things in her heart. Because asking, would you baptize an extraterrestrial? Would you baptize an alien? Forces you to ask, first of all, what is baptism? Why do we have it? What is it supposed to mean? Would it have a meaning to a creature that was alien? And then you ask, what do I mean by alien? God's salvation doesn't depend on how many tentacles you have or what shade of purple your skin is. What does it depend on? There's a classic definition of the soul as intellect and free will. Any entity that is aware of itself, aware of other people, able to ask the questions, am I alone or was I put here for some kind of purpose, and then free to make the choices to love or to ignore the creatures around it, to search for God or to pretend there's no God and I don't need to search and close your eyes. I've just described you and me. And why would they be alien? That said, there's nothing in our tradition that says we're the only things that God created. In, quite, in fact, quite the opposite. What do you think angels are? Exactly. And, and not only that, but the salvation story we have for angels, whether it's beautiful poetry or history, I'm not going to argue that one way or the other. I'm saying it's there in our tradition. And it says their salvation story was different from our salvation story. You know, the second person of the Trinity did not become an angel. But the second person of the Trinity did become a human being. It'll be fascinating if we ever do get to meet other intelligences and get to communicate with them, assuming they're there. And that's a whole lot of ifs. But it will be fascinating to find out because we'll learn because we don't know. And that's the whole joy of it. Here's where, here's where a, a, a moral sticky question might come in, though. Let's say we find perhaps more primitive life in the solar system. I know there are some hedging bets that maybe there's life um, underneath the ice in the oceans of Europa or Enceladus. Crazy idea. Crazy idea. I wrote it first. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It's in my thesis 50 years ago. Exactly. It's a whole different ecosystem apart from ours. Um, you could call it like a separate Garden of Eden. Humans, by our nature, we want to explore. We would want to make contact. But, you know, how many science fiction stories, H.G. Wells we talked about just a moment ago, where contact could lead to catastrophe. I mean, yep. it was pathogens that killed the Martian invaders in War of the Worlds. Do it we... could be our pathogens that kill the Martians exactly. by, by the time we land there. I hope we don't send human beings there quite yet. Yeah. Do humans have a moral or ethical right to intrude upon what could be seen as an alien Garden of Eden? We're going to do it. 
one way or another. We have a moral necessity, but also a scientific necessity, to mess it up as little as possible. Let's say we send space, you know, a spacecraft to Mars with a bunch of volunteer astronauts who are going to only go there one way because we haven't quite figured out how to get them home yet. And they don't make it, and they all die there, which is sadly quite possible. And then 50 years later, we finally do make it, and we find that Mars is infested with E. coli and all sorts of Earth bacteria. Then we'll never know. Was it indigenous to Mars, or was it something that these astronauts brought? And by not knowing, that would be a tragedy, because it means there's knowledge that we wiped out before we could find out. I guess I'll wrap this up by asking you a question. Is What about astronomy would you say most makes you go, wow? The fact that at the end of the day, every night when it's clear, not so often here in Buffalo or Detroit, but when it is, you certainly appreciate it, you can go outside and see a universe that anybody can see if they've got eyes that is bigger than my problems, than the local politics, than how my football team's been doing, and neither of us football teams did very well lately. Um, it reminds you that the universe and God who made this universe is so immense and so beautiful that at the end of the day, it can only be a source of hope. And we call ourselves Catholics, and what does Catholic mean? Universal. Indeed. We are part of this. G.K. Chesterton had a marvelous phrase, uh, and I think it was orthodoxy, where he talks about how nature isn't our mother, nature is our sister, and we are both children of the same father. And we should love nature, not as something that we're in awe of, nor as something that we can dominate, but something that we love as our sister, and as he says, even a little dancing sister that you laugh at as well as love. Brother Guy Consomalio, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you have too. It's been a joy being here. And we hope that you have all enjoyed listening to this on Western New York Catholic Audio. My name is Michael Mrosiak. Thank you so much for listening in. This podcast was recorded in the studios of the Diocese of Buffalo Catholic Center, located in Buffalo, New York. The opinions expressed were exclusively those of the interview participants and not necessarily those of the Diocese of Buffalo. Special thanks to Brother Guy Consolmaglio for his appearance, to Deacon Timothy Criswell for technical assistance, and to Mary Lou Verobeck of the Permanent Chair of Polish Culture at Canisius University for assistance with interview arrangements.